This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Hello and welcome to Navarra FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. The land in England, however green and pleasant, however looming large in the imagination of nativist politics, remains closed off from us. There is no right of access to 92% of land and 97% of rivers in England and Wales. We're living in a world where ancient feudal aristocracies and early capitalist land grabs still hold sway over how we live our lives. They still shape our fundamental rights and freedoms. Meanwhile, ecological destruction is ramping up and recent policing bills are locking us further out of a connection to the world around us. But if you step over barbed wire fences and past the signs glaring private property, keep out, that might be the first step to a better way of relating to nature, a better way of relating to one another. So claims Right to Roam, a campaign group pushing for greater access to lands and waterways. To find out more, I spoke to John Moses, a writer, researcher and a national campaigner with Right to Roam. He's written about the politics of the countryside, ecology and much more besides for outlets including The Guardian, Business Week and The Lead. We talked about the history of enclosure, trespassing etiquette, and the thorny issue of belonging. John, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Al. Good to join you. I'm wondering how you got involved with Right to Rome. If you could tell us a little bit about that, and I guess the, the history of the organisation, because it's fairly new. Uh, yeah, it's been going about two years or so now. Um, I live in the, the Welsh borders. Um, I can sort of just about see England, unfortunately, uh, from my house. Uh, <laughs> Commiserations. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so I live in uh, quite a rural part of the, the country, um, a place that should, in theory, be uh, open countryside. Uh, and yet it's sort of slowly dawned on me in the last few years that actually I can't really go to most of the places that I can see from my window. Uh, I can't access my local river for more than five minutes. I have almost rela- no relationship to this river that I've spent, you know, kind of 20 years of my life next to. Uh, there's one woodland that's accessible by a footpath across a sort of mud-wrecked field. Uh, it was owned by uh, the Beaufort family who destroyed it pretty much in the 1960s and ruined all its nice ancient oaks. So I can walk through a kind of decimated kind of fir plantation wasteland. Um, but all the nice woodland <laughs> I can see in the hills beyond uh, is out of bounds. Um, so I think that was kind of milling around in the back of my head already. Uh, and then I saw an interview with a guy called Nick Hayes, who's the co-founder of Right to Roam uh, and the author of The Book of Trespass, um, who was kind of announcing uh, his campaign, his plan to have a Right to Roam campaign to expand basically a kind of Scottish style land rights model um, into England and then hopefully Wales as well. Uh, and he just said something in that interview about the countryside code and how it wasn't moral enough. And just something about that phrasing really kind of struck a chord with me. Um, so I reached out to him. He'd actually uh, helped fundraise for a project I was working on at the time. Uh, and we went out and sat in Epping Forest around a fire and just kind of like thrashed out uh, kind of everything 
everything from our trajectories and activism to our kind of like vision for what uh, a new type of kind of political campaigning would look like around the land. Uh, and it just became really clear straight away that we were on exactly the same page and on a similar kind of journey. Um, so pretty soon after that, I joined the campaign. And yeah, it's been it's been a whirlwind ever since. <laughs> it's um, fascinating in the context of how much we hear about England is full. There's not enough resources. There's not enough time. There's not, not enough land. There's not enough houses used as a very reliable reactionary talking point when we take account of the fact that uh, I think it's 92% of land and 97% of rivers are constitutionally, legally, someone else's. Like we have no right of access around that. And I like I said, to take um, a scan of the situation as it stands, basically how bad is it? Uh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Fair to say. Uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, uh, you know, only about kind of 10% of land use uh, in England is kind of urban, really. Actually, we're, we're, in, we're still a very much a, a green and an open countryside in theory. Uh, most of the land use, up to 70%, is agricultural. Um, and over a third of the land is still owned by the aristocracy. So th this idea that England is full is absolutely for the birds. I mean, look out of your window, for God's sake. But it can sometimes feel like it's full, and that's because of exactly the stats that you've just cited. So we only have access to about 140,000 miles of footpath. Uh, about 40,000 of those have been kind of vanished, Harry Pottered out of existence um, <laughs> by the various uh, feudal lords that uh, over oversee them. Uh, and then we have 8% of access to uh, what's called open access land. Uh, and that was brought in in 2000 through the Crow Act. Um, but that normally uh, gives you access to quite remote places. It refers to mountain moor, heath and down, uh, <laughs> as the phrasing goes. Um, so these are places that are mostly remote from where a lot of people live. Uh, you would do very well from the Crow Act. If you lived in Cumbria, you'd do very badly from it if you lived in Cambridgeshire. Mm -hmm. um, so for the most part, actually, the kind of local environments in which we live uh, are often off limits, but we've almost psychologically trained ourselves to live within the boundaries of those fences. Um, so I think we don't even acknowledge uh, most of the time, like just how extensive the dispossession is, but we kind of feel it in a more kind of inchoate sense, I think, in terms of our, our alienation, our sense of uh, lack of belonging. I think, you know, recent kind of government polling said that, you know, up to 50% of people uh, had no sense of belonging at all <laughs> to the areas in which they lived. And that for me is absolutely rooted in the question uh, of land ownership and access. Let's roll back for a moment because uh, we are living at the tail end of, I think, what's fair to say is a deeply feudal, uh, like ancient system of we hope like. It's the tail end. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, a, well, it's the midpoint of some hopefully like truncated tale of a deeply feudal history. Right? It's, um, it's laid down, you know, sometimes hundreds, sometimes, you know, literally thousands of years ago, which is bizarre to think about sometimes, you know, if you. If you killed the right sheep farmer um, in in 1100, your great great great, however, grandson happens to own I don't know Suffolk, and um, I would like to talk a little bit about how that history of dispossession, how that history of of land grabs is shaping you know the ways in which um, we do or don't have rights uh, to the lands and rivers of England today. Sure. So uh, you know, kind of. Before the, the Norman Conquest and the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, it's thought that maybe about kind of 4,000 thanes owned most of England, but the kind of what you could do on that land was much more extensive. Now, there's a sort of slightly spurious historical argument about the Norman yoke, and we were all free men under the Anglo-Saxons, and then mm. the Normans came in and, you know, kind of dispossessed us. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. We were probably still quite a hierarchical society in the Anglo-Saxon period. But by and large, land ownership and use of land was much more free and open. Uh, then the Normans come in, that 4,000 
gets reduced to about 200 members of the aristocracy and the clergy. Uh, and actually, that number's stayed pretty consistent ever since. Um, you know, in my valley, uh, the Kent Church estate owned by the Scudamore family, that was taken there in the late 11th century, basically as a thank you for building loads of castles uh, along the Welsh border to uh, dispossess my my forebears. Um, you know, it's still the case today that they have their, their 6,000 acre estate with their deer park uh, that, you know, keeps me off my, my favourite oak tree um, in my valley, the Jack of Kent Oak. Um, the woods that are closest to me, where there is actually public right of access, you know, you wouldn't even know that those are owned by the Duke of Beaufort. You know, there's no kind of estate sign outside of them. Um, and yet they are. He owns most of Wales, in fact, and most of South Wales, such that when the Swansea Council recently tried to build a bridge over the River Towie, um, they had to pay him £300,000 just for the permission to build the bridge. You know, Swansea is one of the kind of most cash-strapped councils in Wales and one of the poorest countries in the UK. And yet we're still making these massive handouts to people just, just for permission to use their land, not even for kind of, you know, construction work of the bridge or anything like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's almost kind of hidden from us in a very pernicious way, not just that the land is kind of enclosed behind the walls of these bigger states, but actually most of what we can see around us is still held in feudal hands. In some kind of, um, I guess, more liberal circles, perhaps, uh, the, the ideas of uh, land access rights and the framework of right to roam can be seen as something that is merely about kind of going for a nice walk on the weekend and then a return to the status quo, return to um, economic business as normal. But when we take a look at the history of these uh, these forms of dispossession, we see a very deep connection to the evolution of capitalism, to the history of enclosures. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, in terms of the, the right to roam campaign, I mean, we're not, we don't really catch ourselves as a campaign for recreation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, recreation's fine. It's great. Physical mental health benefits, all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if right to roam just ended up with more room for people, uh, using ski poles on the weekend, I would see the campaign as a failure. Mm -hmm. Um, really for me, we're an ecological campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, we're interested in restoring people's relationship to the world around them such that they can sort of rebuild the culture of care and connection, uh, that we once had to, the natural world um, so we can uh, create the kind of ecological change that we need in this country and at the moment goes unquestioned simply because people don't see the devastation that's happening on the 92% of land that they can't access. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a kind of colossal biodiversity crisis at the moment uh, and that's because the things that go on in the land are in many cases criminal um, but there's no relationship that I have to that land to kind of witness what's going on and beyond witnessing actually intervene um, to change uh, and, and protect the landscapes around me. So um, for instance, you know, I live um, in, on the River Mono. Uh, the River Mono flows into the River Wye. Uh, at the moment, the River Wye is subject to one of the kind of the biggest uh, river defence campaigns in the country, the Save the Wye campaign. It's become the kind of flagship issue when we talk about rivers and the pollution uh, and all the kind of crises that they face at the moment. Um, the River Wye is one of the 3% of rivers with a statutory right of navigation. It's, you know, it's one of the tiny minority that we have a long-standing history and relationship of access to. So when people have that connection, they don't just stop there. They start to become uh, advocates for nature. They start to become guardians for nature as well. So that's the kind of pipeline, I guess, that we want to take <laughs> people on. You know, yeah, fine, connection for recreation, great. But then beyond recreation, protection, and then restoration as well. Um, so that's just kind of on the on, on, on the liberal question, I guess. Yes, um, <laughs> fabulous. But also, it starts asking questions about land ownership itself. Um, so we've seen that in, in Scotland, for instance, um, the legislation that brought the right to roam into Scotland, the land 
Reform Act, brought in in 2003, was also the same bit of legislation that started things like the community right to buy, for instance, um, that saw uh, the residents of the Isle of Egg uh, buy out their feudal laird uh, and take that island back into community ownership. Uh, and obviously, that story uh, has continued in Scotland and is only growing. So, um, you know, sometimes our opponents say that, you know, right to roam is a, you know, it's a kind of like, it's all a trap. It's a gateway drug to kind of much wider questions about land ownership. Uh, don't be tricked or whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, it is a gateway drug <laughs> to ask questions Correct. about land ownership. Uh, absolutely. Because the, the extent of land ownership in this country is ridiculous. It's indefensible. Can you talk to us a bit about the international history of these processes of dispossession? Because the enclosures in the sort of... Uh, depending how you count it from the either from the 1100s or the 1400s or certainly from the 1600s uh, it, parceling out vast swaths of land to private individuals that used to be common land about 30% I believe it was supposedly common land um, during this broad uh, swath of time period um, a lot of it is funded through other forms of brutality abroad Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, s slavery from the kind of 17th century onwards, uh, uh, colonialism, all those ventures are creating the resources required to start buying out the land that's made available by the Enclosure Acts, essentially. Now, um, I kind of don't want to put the cart before the horse because actually I think a lot of the uh, historical research on this still needs to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, we know in a kind of broad sense that that's the dynamic at play, um, but the kind of fine grain archival detail, you know, that, that research is still an open question. So I would implore any PhD students uh, out there. And to I'm start, sure there are uh, some listening. <laughs> indeed, uh, I'm sure there are many listening. Um, so yeah, start tucking into this question because we know the broad strokes of it, but I think the detail of it is absolutely fascinating. Um, so, you know, just to take a kind of totemic example, uh, the Scarborough Estate, which is owned by Richard Drax, formerly one of the wealthiest MPs in Parliament. I think he's now bested by Rishi Sunak, um, our dear Prime Minister. Um, you know, his family estate was almost entirely bankrolled by slavery. Henry Drax, his uh, uh, kind of... Uh, ancient relation, wrote literally the slave manual, you know, how you run a slave plantation uh, in Barbados in the 17th century. Um, so those resources were all going into um, the Charborough estate and to the expansion of that estate. Um, Charborough sits on the remnants of an old medieval village, which basically got shut down and pushed off to the outside of this wall that was built. Um, and then, of course, the landowners, when when slavery was, you know, quote unquote, abolished, because you know, we, we all know it wasn't quite as <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple as that in the early 19th century, you know, the huge amounts of compensation that he received, um, I suspect, went into funding his wall around his estate, which uh, is kind of possibly apocryphally known as the, the longest wall in England. Um, so there's absolutely an entanglement between the proceeds uh, that are going on kind of internationally um, uh, and the kind of dispossession of land uh, and, uh, and the commoners basically in England. Um, another kind of interesting thing that's occurring there, I think, is that Land ownership and the kind of hierarchy of feudalism was propped up in this country, um, basically through a system of patronage. So yes, you're the local lord, you've got loads of money, you've got all the land, but you're kind of expected to do certain good works, right? So, you know, when, when John Clare, the poet, uh, who's the famous poet of enclosure, of course, um, is gets kind of noticed by the London literary scene. Um, there's all these letters being written to like Lord Milton, who's like, you know, to basically just sponsor him. It's like, you know, there's a there's a peasant who's got some slamming verse out there. You know, you've got to pony up basically, right? If only. Um, yeah. <laughs> Richard Drax, sponsor me. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that idea, and okay, as you, as you say, it might be more of a mythos <laughs> than a reality in many senses. But the, the capacity to enact patronage, again, is coming from all this resource that's happening internationally. So, yeah, the kind of feudal system very much propped up um, by what's going on internationally. And um, 
I think the kind of the other thing that we're doing is kind of when we're when we're going through this process of enclosure, uh, or the people at the time would call it improvement, creating agricultural improvements. Um, we're exporting that idea around the world as well, mm-hmm. um, and in many ways, the kind of the, the colonies are the places where a lot of these kind of agricultural practices are tried out. Uh, and then the, the idea is, you know, as we've done um, to the colonials abroad, we must now do to kind of you know Finsbury Park and Epping Forest. I mean, there's there's literally quotations to that effect. So very much a kind of boomerang effect. I think, and a boomerang relationship between uh, colonial dispossession and dispossession at home. Mm. I'd love to know a bit more about what happened during these enclosures. Like, What was that like to live through for, for the people at the time? And I guess what does that tell us about how these land rights relate to other forms of freedoms? Uh, it was deeply psychologically traumatic for people to live through. Um, we went from what was called the open field system, where by and large uh, people uh, farmed in strips as part of a kind of large uh, kind of social organism, effectively, where there was lots of collective agreement about what you would plant and when, lots of mutual support, you know, uh, all the harvesting and all the kind of work on the land would be done at the same time and then would be integrated into various festivals, you know, the harvest time uh, festivals and, and May Day and all that kind of stuff. Uh, all the sort of folk culture, really, of England originates in that agricultural rhythm. Um, so what enclosure does then is kind of override the open field system, uh, gather together lots of those strips into one place and then plant a really great massive hedge with lots of spikes um, <laughs> in it, as many spikes as possible. That's why we have so much hawthorn and blackthorn uh, around the country. Um to keep people out and the keep up sign went up uh, and that was it. And your your kind of, uh, your whole social relations went with that. Your access to the land around you went with that. Um, the whole kind of diversity of culture uh, of English ruralism got squashed literally into the monoculture that's almost replicated in the field behind the hedge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, you can really read it and feel it in jo- people like John Clare's poetry, who's a, this kind of Northamptonshire peasant poet. Um, the kind of trauma of that experience you know, you know, John Clare goes mad. I don't know. It was kind of completely connected to enclosure, but the the sort of the sense of kind of melancholic dispossession is just absolutely rife um, through his poetry. Um, and you know, it was resisted ferociously as a result. Um, but that kind of story has been sort of pushed to one side. We almost think that enclosure is this kind of organic unfolding of like historical inevitability now. Um, but actually it was kind of forcibly implemented, uh, often in kind of psychopathic detail, <laughs> um, which we can go into in a minute. Um, uh, and it was heavily resisted by the people who lived through it, who did not see what was happening as a kind of net improvement, either to their own prospects or the nation's. Let's talk a bit about that psychopathic detail, because um, when, whenever sort of an incredibly detailed, um, terrifying imagination, and of course, a lot of cash is funneled towards a project, it behooves us maybe to ask why, for what, why, why are they engaging on, uh, in this project with such doggedness? Oh. So I've been reading uh, these general agricultural surveys from the early 19th century. This is the kind of, you know, what I do for fun. Rock and roll. Yeah, <laughs> these days. Uh, but they're fascinating historical sources. Um, so they basically give you a kind of county by county account of the land use, uh, the kind of finances, the uh, the kind of systems of agriculture that are predominating in particular regions at a given time. Uh, and they're all sponsored by this guy, Sir John Sinclair, who's a Scottish aristocrat, a uh, major slave owner, of course, um, big, big role in the, the Highland clearances uh, north of the border. Um, 
And what those documents give us is an insight into the mindset of these people who termed what they were doing as improvement. So that's how they kind of understood it. They saw this system of, of kind of field strip farming uh, of, of enclosures and wastes, uh, sorry, of commons and wastes as being kind of highly agriculturally inefficient. So uh, a close example to me, I grew up on the Gwent Levels, which is a kind of swampy marshland, basically, in the south of Wales and Severn Estuary. Um, although I say swampy marshland, but actually much of it is a closed field system. System now that's drained agricultural land. Um, so improvers would like Charles Hassel, for instance, who wrote the survey in Monmouthshire, uh, would come and see this kind of like swampy, marshy fenland, probably absolutely like rich and rife with biodiversity, uh, with commoners, you know, taking their cattle along it, kids gathering the furs, a few geese kind of wandering around here and there and say, you know, <laughs> this won't do at all. Don't these idiots know how productive this agricultural land would be if we just drained it all? Uh, and that's exactly, of course, what happens. So uh, the landscape gets drained, you know, all the animals that thrived in that environment get pushed off. Uh, and within the commoners as well. So there's an absolutely relationship between people who wanted to uh, push life off the land and extinguish life from it as well. So again, it's that entanglement of the kind of diversity of culture um, going hand in hand with the biodiversity of creatures. I think the more we have a kind of rich, vibrant, weird rural culture in this country, the more we'll see a rich, vibrant, weird uh, nature as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, mon monoculture in all senses. Yeah. <laughs> Make the countryside weird again. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> it really strikes me how much of this pushes back against the fundamental mis misanthropy of a lot of ecological thinking. Absolutely. We think about the, the tragedy of the commons, quote unquote, which is obviously a very telling phrase, and uh, the way in which human life is, is set against uh, a lot of, or the entirety of the rest of the web of life, right? The presence of humans, equals destruction of nature ipso facto great and therefore you get a permission on ecological grounds to keep that 92 percent inaccessible to the vast majority of people yeah absolutely so this this model that's sometimes term kind of fortress conservation is absolutely grounded in this myth of a kind of pristine ecological wilderness that people can only do anything but ruin basically um, you know we, we take kind of figures like John Muir of course a Scottish guy but went over to Yosemite uh, and he writes these tracks of this amazing pristine wilderness that he's encountering you know bollocks was he he was looking at you know basically a thousand years of indigenous gardening basically <laughs> in the Yosemite Valley um, but what happens as a result of that oh it's a national park we declare it a kind of conservation zone the indigenous people are, are pushed out uh, so that the landscape can be re restored, quote unquote, to this kind of completely artificial thing that never was. Um, so absolutely, we need to bring people back into the land again. We need to restore that relationship of connection and care. Um, and that was exactly what the enclosure uh, acts were kind of designed to break. Um, Basically, we had this class of people who were kind of the extant remnants of the English peasantry. Uh, and they didn't really want to work for anyone unless they had to. Uh, they could self, uh, they could be self-sufficient and um, pretty much using these commons and wastes. That meant that agricultural wages were very high. Um, you know, because you, you didn't face the threat of starvation because you could rely on, on, you know, all these kind of common rights of estivers and, and gleaning and panage for your pigs and all the rest of it. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Just for the sake of clarity, yep. gleaning, panage, <laughs> for those of us unburdened with a feudal agricultural knowledge, very yeah. sadly, what are we talking about there? Okay, so with access to common lands uh, and what we call the wastes, and 
take that term uh, in advisement, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we think of the idea of what's wasted now as something that's kind of useless. Mm-hmm. Um, but that derives from this land uh, that was very useful. Um, you know, it might be a waste in kind of uh, the ideology of agricultural efficiency, uh, but not in others. Anyway, uh, so you're right. You had common right to those lands. You didn't necessarily own the land. So there's sometimes a slight misconception uh, in, in the left that what happened is the kind of the land gets stolen in an ownership sense. You know, that's already happened. Um, but what does get removed in enclosure is those exactly those common rights, the rights to estivers to go and gather wood, uh, the right to panage, which is um, your right for your, your your pigs to go in the in the beech wood and sort of snuffle up the nuts, uh, take all the mast from the floor. Um, your right to glean, which gleaning wasn't actually a right, but it's basically a kind of informal custom that, you know, after the harvest is done, you can kind of wander onto uh, the field and kind of pick up any turnips and bits and scraps and stuff uh, that are let over. So there's a whole kind of like suite of possibilities that enable you to live this in this position of kind of you know, pretty much kind of semi-autonomy if you're a commoner. So you're not reliant on the parish and you're not reliant on wage labour in order to survive. You probably do piecemeal bits of wage labour here and there, as I say, as a, as a high price because you're not facing starvation. But really what you want to spend your time doing is going out, collecting the furs, which is this kind of lovely coconutty gorse thing. Um, <laughs> send your kids to do that because it's all spiky. Um, you know, you want to take your, your pig around to, to snuffle up and, and, and get a bit of food in. Uh, and then you can pretty much live this kind of self-sufficient life. Um, so, you know, actually a, a kind of beautiful quote that I really like from uh, one of these enclosure pamphlets I was talking about um, is that the greatest of evils to agriculture would be to place the labourer in a state of independence and thus destroy the indispensable gradations of society. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> these these commoners, they couldn't be told what to do, basically. And they weren't interested in sort of improving themselves in a financial s- sense um, because their lives were poor, but in a kind of glorious poverty, I suppose. Uh, they valued their autonomy more than they valued wealth. Uh, and that was a real problem <laughs> for the mentality of the, the 18th century and the 19th century. And actually what happens um, in the process of enclosure um, is exactly as we put up those hedgerows, the, the psychopathic detail I referred to earlier, you know, they make sure that you don't plant any fruit trees in the hedgerow or that the orchard isn't too close to the footpath so that people couldn't glean the fruits from the hedgerows in order to maintain that position of independence once they've been pushed off the land. So, you know, they really kind of micromanage uh, exactly how these people can live so that they can never again return to that state of independence. You know, and that goes uh, literally to the animals that are allowed the commoners when they're pushed out into these farmsteads to work as new wage labourers. You know, we can't give them a cow because uh, a cow allows you a kind of uh, too much you know possibility basically you can get meat from it you can get uh, uh, milk from it you can you know tan it for hides or whatever you can live quite well off a cow but a pig a pig will pe- keep you off the parish but it's not enough to live by so no cows for the commoners but we can give them a pig um, you know, oh it, they really kind of like finely tune exactly how these people are going to live pushing them out of the village onto these isolated farmsteads so they lose the they call it gossip, but really the kind of social solidarity of the village. Um, you know, can't pick from the hedgerows anymore, haven't got your common rights. Uh, and you become, of course, subservient then as a wage labourer. And that keeps wages low. Mm. <laughs> Whenever we think about this as history of dispossession, the phrase cost of living crisis always is very looming large in my imagination. Because I think I'm I'm one of the... Uh, 
member because i think i'm one of the members of a species which is the only species on this planet which pays to live here yeah. i feel very very foolish about that I was like what do you mean cost of living crisis <laughs> i didn't choose this is this is completely bananas um and this really kind of gets to uh, I guess the heart of how these questions redound to uh, how land access rights can shape the rest of how we live as political subjects we now, the result of this kind of long process of enclosure and land dispossession, is that we now walk through a landscape of imprisonment, effectively. You know, uh, that, that term might sound kind of, kind of a bit like forceful or violent, but what else is it? I mean, uh, you know, in order to get to the nearest village to where I live, I have to slog my way down a kind of miserable road, effectively, when the river is right there and the beautiful valley is above me right there. And I'm sort of stuck literally uh, between these kind of two spiky hedgerows uh, <laughs> that were set up, you know, unable to access either, you know. So my collection to that landscape is to a bit of asphalt track, essentially, rather than the kind of the, the magic and the abundance um, that I can see, you know, with my own eyes around me. Um, and I think with that has come a sense of spiritual loss as well. You know, um, I want access to nature. Okay, yes, when I speak to kind of government officials, I talk about the physical and mental health benefits of nature. <laughs> but what do we mean when we say kind of the mental health benefits? You know, because for me, it's about being able to jump in my local river, um, kind of wiggle my way down to the, to the bottom of the riverbed and sort of have, you know, bug eye view with a kind of local salmon sprat and have that moment of like weird, uncanny, freaky connection with that creature. And then when I emerged to the surface and kept my kind of frog's eye view, as Roger Deacon called it, you know, just, just peeping my eyes above the kind of, uh, <laughs> the kind of the tops of the water and all the insects are kind of fizzing around me and a sparrowhawk is zooming around, kind of about to pluck a pipistrelle out of the air. Um, you know, you feel something equivalent to an LSD trip, basically. You know, the countryside is just pure, unadulterated acid. Um, and yet we are not <laughs> given the kind of permission to uh, live and experience that on a, on a daily basis. Um, and just as with the acid trip, you know, you would feel that sense of deep connectivity, that deep sense of belonging where the kind of boundaries between your body and the world start to dissolve. And when you're in that space, how can you not care and protect for everything that's around you? Because you absolutely understand that you're a part of it. You're not just kind of passing through on a footpath. You're not just looking for, you know, uh, a kind of place to exercise your ski poles or your dog or whatever. Um, you're reaching at something much more profound and deep about what it is to be human uh, in a non-human world. When we think about belonging, um, we often think about it in terms of an exclusive membership, yeah. something that is defined according to what other people don't have. And how has your thinking uh, developed along these lines when we think about what it is to belong to a place, yeah. what it is to be a guardian of a place? I'm thinking particularly because there's always this shadow of a very kind of far right imaginary of yeah. the rolling green pastures of England and therefore we should keep immigrants out and do all kinds of horrible violence yeah. to it. So how, how do we move past those frameworks? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it the left has been, I guess, uncomfortable about talking about things like belonging for a long time, exactly for those reasons. But I think it's absolutely essential to talk about it and define it not in kind of terms of exclusivity or terms of birthright or terms of ownership, but rather in terms of relationship. So giving people access gives everyone the chance to connect. It gives everyone the chance to start building those relationships, which uh, shape uh 
shape your sense of belonging. You can cultivate it, right? And there are all kinds of obstacles and barriers put in the way of that process. But fundamentally, that's possible for most people if we give them the means and if we give them the rights. Um, you know, there are so many people who are acting to be agents of ecological restoration in this country who literally have no status to be here. You know, I know an asylum seeker who uh, works in an RSP reserve. I say works, he volunteers because he can't work, of course. Government's <laughs> not giving me any right or permission to work. Um, but for 15 years, he's protected the turns uh, in that reserve, you know, not because he was born here, he wasn't born here, you know, not because uh, he uh, feels this kind of sense of exclusive ownership of that place, but because he feels connected to those birds, because it's healing, because it's meaningful to him. Um, so I think we absolutely need to talk about belonging, but reframe what we mean when we say belonging and move it away from this kind of spurious notion that just by owning land, you somehow ha have a kind of uh, de facto uh, uh, sense of kind of uh, rights to belong to it or connection to it um, that supersedes the rights of others what would you say to people who are um, suspicious of any conditionality on belonging even if it's a sort of you know positive conditionality of kind of land guardianship Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying in order to access nature, you need to kind of, you know, show your your three steps of river guardianship or whatever that week. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm talking about something that is um, something, a, a possibility that is available to everyone and they can choose in what terms they make that. And I think for many people, it's a journey that happens throughout their lives. So, you know, we often have this kind of conversation about disregard in the countryside, right? You know, oh, we, you know, we let people in, but they don't know how to treat the place, you know, with kids here the other week they put up a camp you know they left a load of rubbish in the fire pit and had a fire where they shouldn't and all the rest of it um so those those bad people you know they shouldn't be allowed in the countryside whereas i should because i'm special and i picked up after them mm. we have to move away from that mindset right because people we have to take collective responsibility um for kids to to fuck it up basically mm. you know to go and have those first initial um maybe kind of slightly awkward slightly clumsy experiences in the natural world and maybe yeah show a bit of disregard because that is the beginning that's the seed right that's going to carry them through their lives uh they can feel then come back to that place form a better connection with it next time and slowly uh the way that they relate to that place will change and, and you know behavior or whatever will improve so when i see litter yeah okay i pick it up after itself but i don't feel smug about it i don't say oh yes i'm so special we should keep those people out but i'm the one that's entitled no it's my responsibility to give those kids the chance to fuck it up um you know we are starting from a place of absolute alienation right now in terms of connection to the natural world so yeah there are going to be issues people aren't going to necessarily treat the land with the, the kind of care and due reverence that we might all hope or whatever um, but we have to start somewhere and we have to see it as our collective problem um, to allow people back in uh, to start forming those relationships you know in completely unconditional terms perhaps even slightly damaging terms mm. yeah. and however much a sort of teenagers will like spill a teenager still drinking WKD. I'm yeah. so old. Uh, WKD <laughs> bottles uh, in you know a local wood woodland. It feels like it pales in comparison to the you know industrial effluent poured yeah. into the river, river yeah. white. Right. So can you talk to me a little bit about uh, the connection between this sort of fortress conservation and the kind of perpetuation of you know, the damaging terms of agriculture and land use at the moment? Yeah. We have, uh, you know, uh, an entirely artificial and inverted conversation about where archaeological harm happens in this country. So I spend all my time talking about dogs and crisp packets, um, people who've like abandoned tents and stuff like that. Right. That's on, on a standard radio show. Those are the questions I will get. Um, 
when at the same time, you know, biodiversity has collapsed by, I think, something like 70% in this country. You know, birds are being kind of like brought to the point of extinction uh, in this country. Uh, you know, the landscape is being devastated on an industrial scale by farming, by industry itself. Um, and yet we're still standing around talking about crisp packets as though that's the kind of central issue here. Uh, of course, it's not. Yeah, yeah, people can show disregard. Nobody, uh, people aren't necessarily perfect. And we need to build that culture of kind of education and respect and so on um, that I've spoken about earlier. Um, but the idea that what's going on here is that if we exclude people from the land, which, by the way, we've already been doing, <laughs> that that will somehow lead to kind of ecological renewal. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's absolutely for the birds that no longer exist. Um, <laughs> Terrifying. Um, so when we talk about the process of keeping people out, we see the evolution of terms and criminal categories like a trespasser, vagrant, the criminalization of being a wanderer, which is in many senses also racialized. We see this today with yeah. the further criminalization of GRT people. Uh, so can you talk to us about um, how those laws came to be? Because they, when we take yeah. a, a slight historical angle on them, they seem so fundamentally bizarre. That's a really important connection that I think is overlooked a lot of the time, that nearly all of the laws that were used to keep us out of the land, and that's everybody, um, started with laws targeted at gypsy minorities in this country. That goes right back to kind of Henry VIII, who brought in laws to deal with what he called the Egyptians uh, at the time, referring to gypsy people. Um, that was the beginning of kind of policies of enclosure and exclusion, you know, pretty much from the 16th century onwards. Uh, that goes right up to date with the police crime and sentencing bill that you referred to. So, you know, the attacks on everybody always, uh, particularly when it comes to the land, always start on the people that don't have that exclusive claim to a particular fixed pocket of land that are nomadic. Um, so that's one thing that we need to bear in mind. Uh, in terms of where kind of trespass stands today in this country, um, it is still the case that trespass is a civil offence by and large. What the Police Crime and Sentencing Bill ended up doing was kind of very specifically targeting the GRT community um, because it's about intent to reside with six or more vehicles. Um, so it's to stop their way of life, basically. So a deeply racist bit of legislation. Um, no doubt if that evolves, as I said, it would go to dispossessing and criminalising all acts of trespass. I have no doubt about that if we were facing more Tory rule. Um, so that's a kind of, you know, warning to middle class people who think that, you know, that struggles nothing about them. Um, it absolutely is. Um, but trespass accessing lands today still a civil offence so long as you don't commit damage to property and so long as you don't disrupt lawful activity um, so we have this idea of aggravated trespass which is a criminal offence uh, that was brought in basically to disrupt the activity of hunt saboteurs to disrupt the quote-unquote then lawful activity uh, of fox hunts of course now a lot of fox hunting activity is illegal um, but as long as you avoid those issues, you still basically are able to go on most land and access most water in this country. Um, and that's a, a kind of a powerful thing that I want to kind of hand on to your listeners. You can choose to be free today without facing any criminal issues, so long as you don't damage property, so long as you don't disrupt lawful activity. Um, so that's immensely empowering because actually all that's standing in the way is the fence, is the keep out sign, and I think a fear of kind of confrontation, a mm. fear of like what's going to happen when the, the gamekeeper, the landowner, the farmer comes at me, um, basically. So <laughs> one of the things Right to Roam does is we kind of organise these workshops where we teach people their rights on the land, we teach people what the law is, but we also do kind of confrontation management. We role play scenarios uh, and work out ways that you can feel comfortable in that exchange, which can often go in lots of interesting directions, um, but basically to empower people to start 
claiming back the land again to start reconnecting, you know, regardless of what, uh, whether they own the land or not. And often the keep out signs and the barbed wire fences are erected illegally as well. They just kind of trust that we have been so uh, acclimatized to this dispossession, to the fact that we have no purported claim on anything other than the, you know, ha- the tiny square footage on which, you know, the, the average British person lives. It's very understandable that landowners will rely on that, right? I should say as well that the situation with water, particularly rivers, is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we say that only 3% of rivers have a kind of guaranteed right of access or right of navigation, like the River Wye. Um, that's true, uh, but there's been no test case to ascertain whether being in the water itself, not on the riverbank and the riverbed, which is owned, uh, constitutes trespass. So no one's tested that in court. So as you're swimming along, as you're on your paddleboard, as you're on your canoe or whatever, uh, there is nothing in the law to say that you shouldn't be on that water at the moment. Now, <laughs> anglers, anglers and so on have presented it as, as though that isn't the case. Uh, and you know, we don't know which way it might go in court. But at the moment, I just want to make that clear distinction from uh, accessing the land, which is a civil offence, although the stakes of it are very low. You know, the, the, the likelihood of a landowner taking you to civil court for trespass is almost negligible. It would be a massive waste of their time and money if they did. Um, but water, there is slightly more, at least kind of ambiguity um, existing at the moment uh, in the law. And, Potentially yeah. legal to float. Yes. So if anyone, <laughs> exactly. if anyone listening wants to try that out. The, the thin gruel that uh, <laughs> remains, Good but nonetheless Lord. Uh, yes. an important. Uh, yeah, right. very much remarkable. Reminds me of the legislation around uh, sex work. Technically, it's not a crime. Just everything around it is made <laughs> yeah. as difficult yeah. as possible. Um, when we talking of this uh, process of criminalisation, uh, there is a reliable concept between the criminalisation of protest alongside the criminalisation of trespass, very much shaping what so-called public land yeah. is supposed to be for. And there's yeah. a big history of people, communists also, uh, pushing back against that because they see how fundamental that connection is. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, one of the nice things about organising in the countryside is um, it's quite hard to get the police to you <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, so we've only had the police turn up to one of our rents on one occasion. You know, a couple of rural police officers facing about four hundred people uh, in Pangdean Bottom, just outside Brighton. Uh, I think the the police officer came up to me. You know, who's organising this or whatever? As we kind of do our little bit of kind of botanising or whatever in the field, uh, I said, "Oh, you know, no one, no one's organising it. Don't worry about it." He actually managed to slip on the bank and sort of roly poly backwards and got it very red faced and then sort of shuffled over. To the hedgerow and <laughs> but it's got a black stone. and white and red um, all over lovely <laughs> um so you're you're absolutely right that you know similar legislation around protests could start to begin to affect our activities in the countryside but just logistically it's a lot harder for the police to get to us so that's the kind of current state of play as i see it um and one of the the nice pleasures i suppose of, of my job having you know well one time being an urban activist and faced a very different context um but yeah, I mean, the, the, the working class struggles, the kind of late 19th century onwards, when this kind of, you know, once the commoners were kind of shoved off the land and they were stuffed into cities to work as wage labourers, you know, they still were fighting for the kind of slivers of reconnection that they could claim. So going out to the Peak District from Sheffield and Manchester uh, and organising these mass trespasses of the big grouse moors that were owned by aristocrats uh, up in the moorland there. Um, so there's a long heritage to this phrase, right to roam, uh, and it comes absolutely out of working class struggle, working class. Uh, resistance to them being shoved off the land 
often couched in kind of recreational terms by that point, by the late 19th century, you know, the kind of the rights to clean air, you know, uh, for instance. And they would talk about the, the physical and mental health benefits as well. Um, there was a kind of charter for the open air that was proposed uh, when the Na- National Health Service um, was being floated in the post-war period. The idea that would so that it would go kind of hand in hand almost with like a natural health service as well. And that, you know, access to the countryside would be fundamental to the vision of the NHS. That's actually an idea that's coming back now with green prescribing and so on. But doctors are telling us, okay, great, green prescribing. Literally, where do I prescribe them to go, right? Because <laughs> there's, there's nowhere for them to, to be. We're doing an event on that uh, next month. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a long powerful heritage to this of working class resistance uh, and actually you know even in unexpected places like London for instance most of the major parks in London are the product of struggles against enclosure and attempts to enclosure uh, enclose land so Richmond Park is only there because there was a massive fight over it mm-hmm. <laughs> Epping Forest is only accessible because there was a massive fight over it you know parts of Hampstead Heath again only accessible because there were a massive fight over it so most of the green space that's enjoyed by Londoners you know often seen as kind of divorced from uh, uh, these kind of land issues, rural politics, all that kind of stuff. You know, all the green space that you enjoy, the reason London's, you know, you know quite an abundant city with parks and so on, is for the most part a product of exactly these things as well. So what does that mean for people living in an urban context who have less immediate access perhaps to like the non-human environment and also who face much more stringent policing when you try to you know cross those lines that divide us and particularly if you're not a white person particularly if you're not a white middle class person who can't like Hugh Grant your way out of a situation (laughs) like oh I'm terribly sorry was I not supposed to be here that kind of thing yeah you're absolutely right uh that this is a kind of uneven potential, I suppose, uh, for different people. And that's something we talk about in the workshops as well. Um, so, you know, there is power in numbers. And that's one of the reasons we're organizing uh, local groups so that people can go to the land together um, so they can't be kind of singled out and targeted in that sense. There has been a real um, kind of flowering of people of color groups related to the countryside, less so far around kind of trespass and so on, um, but simply about kind of connecting to the land again and feeling uh, at home in the countryside, which can often feel like a white space. You know, we we talk about the kind of, it's not only the physical barriers preventing access, it's also those invisible barriers as well, which can be kind of, you know, cultural, they can be logistical in terms of just getting kind of the resources to go out to a national park or so on. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a kind of uneven relationship that's kind of has, that's also linked, I think, to the questions of, uh, of migration and the experience of generations beyond you as well. So um, for, for many people uh, in people of colour communities, they came from generations that were much more connected to the land, but there's a kind of shame around it that that was seen as backwardness and that when um, migration happened, um, you know, the city and the kind of industrial future and, and ideas of modernity were sort of entangled with that as well. So the countryside stopped being uh, a place to be, it became perhaps a place of shame. Um, you know, I'm not the right person to kind of speak to these issues. You know, I'm I am a white boy, but um, you know, those are the kind of themes that come out when we when we do discuss these issues uh, with within the campaign. Uh, and Nadia Sheikh, who's uh, kind of co-director of the campaign, um, does loads of amazing work around kind of people of color organizing uh, and access rights, and you know, thinking about again access less in kind of ski pole recreational terms and more about kind of what it means to heal in the landscape and kind of restore ourselves to a natural world as well. Um, yeah. You've talked about the loss of knowledge, a kind of fundamental de-skilling. So yeah. how do you go about um, providing the, sort of the education necessary mm. for, you know, not just a countryside code, how to go on a walk and not leave your crisp packets behind yeah. you, but for, uh, to uh, inculcate those deeper relationships that you've been talking about? Yeah, so it's it's part 
cultural and social, obviously, and it's part kind of about the education system and the government. Um, so I would like to see uh, the outdoors and, and, and nature education kind of integrated into all forms of education, uh, really simple ways in which you can see that happening. Um, for instance, you know, I studied GCSE biology uh, many moons ago or whatever. I remember one tiny fragment of that course being about plants. And all I remember from it is learning about the xylem and the phloem. Uh, have I ever thought or <laughs> used the term xylem and phloem ever since then? Uh, no. Um, but did I come out of that biology course knowing a single species of plant around me? Did I know a single bird? Absolutely not. So we, we kind of teach all the sort of pointless abstract knowledge, um, no offence teachers, um, in a lot of the curriculum and education system without teaching people what's literally around them, what's in their life world, why does it matter, how might you connect to it? Um, so there are all kinds of opportunities, I think, to kind of reshape the curriculum to start helping build that culture of connection and care. But it has to go way beyond that as well. You know, it can't just be about the government, you know, doing it in a kind of top-down fashion. I would like to see every conservation charity in this country involved in absolute immediate practical efforts to offer free reconnection to anyone who wants it. Uh, and that's taking kind of botanists, it's taking bird watchers, it's taking people who know and love ecosystems and, and bringing people physically into the land to have those kind of meaningful, empowering, kind of transcendental moments that I was describing earlier so that you feel that relationship of connection and care. You know, it just comes kind of like naturally and instinctively to you. Um, and that goes beyond a kind of list of prescriptions like the, the countryside code, you know, it goes along of, you know, the, the sort of uh, the, the kind of telling off the voice, the patrician voice that we often hear uh, in the countryside written across the signs and all the rest of it. You know, it has to come from within and it has to come culturally. Um, you know, when we do our mass trespass events, we don't see them as protests. You know, when, when we were on the badminton estate, 52,000 acre estate owned by the, the Duke of Beaufort, uh, another Norman acquisition um, <laughs> last year, uh, that event was run by four professional botanists and we spent all our time learning about wildflowers and particularly uh, how they were related to medicine and kind of, you know, integrating us back into some of that kind of like folk, folk knowledge that would have been uh, an intricate part of our society once uh, and has been lost. Um, you know, and with that has come, you know, all the kind of festivals and, and all the sort of um, the rich, deep culture that I was talking about earlier. You know, those were often rooted around observation of the plants and the seasonality. Um, so one of my favourite ones was uh, Bilberry Day, um, La, La Luna Day, which happened on the Isle of Man. And we know about it because of this forlorn account of, a, of a, the local priest um, who goes up into the hills <laughs> to try and stop all the kids picking the bilberries and then having basically a massive orgy <laughs> up on the kind of up oh the hills. You know, this is the kind of riotous weird kind of like you know uh, tradition that we could inherit <laughs> I mean, you know we see the countryside so much now in this kind of like quite stuffy kind of you know tweed jacket kind of mentality no it was a, like it was a, a riotous place a weird place an erotic place you know uh, and that culture got extinguished as well so um you know but that starts with just the like the observation of a bit of speedwell. It's, it starts with knowing when the bilberry is coming out and, and where it resides. You know, it starts with that really kind of close and intimate focus on the natural world and what's around us. You know, and that's transformed my perception as well. You know, I, I'd been mountaineering and doing all that kind of stuff throughout my twenties. I thought I was a you know badass, you know, gnarly outdoor bro. You know, go rock climbing and you know, getting getting my ice axes out and you know doing all that stuff. Uh, and I realized in my sort of early 30s, I was like, I'm completely ignorant, actually. 
I'm completely alienated in these environments that I think I'm so kind of in command of. Um, I don't know anything about <laughs> a lot of the kind of plants and birds around me. Uh, and so I just started on a personal journey of, you know, kind of each year I would choose a new thing. I started with birds and I went on to mushrooms and I looked at mosses and then plants. And each year I would just try and redirect my focus and attention onto one element of the ecology that was around me. Uh, and as I've gotten more involved in land justice campaigning, I've been you know lucky to be surrounded by amazing ornithologists and brilliant botanists who've just taught me so much and now my my kind of daily perceptual reality is so heightened you know all the time that every day is just much more joyous and rich you know there's been a kind of sensory depletion that has come with that disconnection from the natural world um, that means every single day is more impoverished as a result uh, and that's a tragedy we might be going back here to the um, possibility of abstract knowledge. That's final <laughs> revanchist blow for the biology teachers of the world. <laughs> sorry, but, biology uh, sorry, biology teachers. I know, teachers. When, I know teachers have to say, I know teachers get very annoyed when you say, just stuff it in the curriculum. They're like, where's what room? You know, so, so, but yeah, but we could sorry, get rid of maths, right? Who needs maths? <laughs> who needs algebra? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Terrible. Unfortunately, I like maths birds. at school because I'm a um, huge nerd. But um, that aside, um, let's talk about the possibility of that kind of citizen science, which mm. sort of gestured towards and its potential role yeah. in uh, campaigns for mm. ecological justice. Because yeah. as you said, if we don't know what's going on on 92% of the land, it, it is yeah. easy to be kind of lulled into a sense of everything's sort of fine yeah. and everything's still very green and very pleasant. I certainly through mm. learning more about these issues myself, it's been a kind of a tragic revelation in some ways. I'm definitely not going to be able to look at, say, the mountains of Scotland without being able to see the felled woods as well. Yeah, I mean, this is the the double bind of, uh, you know, ecological education, I think it was Alpo uh, Leopold who said, you know, to have an ecological education is to live in a world of wounds. So actually, <laughs> the more you know, the more you start to perceive what's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so along with the kind of sensory expansion that I was describing, which can be very rich and luxurious, um, there's also uh, can be grief as well. You know, there can be kind of pain uh, mm -hmm. witnessing landscapes that you think were kind of like fine and dandy, but actually you realize now are ecological deserts. Um, in, in terms of the kind of the, the citizen science stuff, I mean, this is crucial, I think, because, you know, take the river Y, for instance, for years, in the last kind of five, 10 years, the condition of that river has gotten worse and worse and worse. And because people know that river, because they have a deep relationship to it, because they can literally taste what the water's supposed to taste like when they're swimming in it, they knew that something was going wrong. Uh, and yet at the same time, the Environment Agency, Natural Resources Wales, you know, all the bodies uh, tasked with the protection of that river were saying, nope, nothing to see here, everything fine, everything's normal, all dandy. Um, you know, they were selling basically a myth because they didn't have the resources to fund any kind of regulation or enforcement of it, you know big agriculture, of course, was saying exactly the same the water companies saying, oh, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing's changed. Um, so it was, it was that initial connection of realizing something was going wrong that showed us that the regulators were lying. Uh, and then, of course, that got followed up with active citizen science efforts where we started mapping uh, the river itself and its condition and the phosphate levels and all the rest of it to see and prove that actually um, something was going deeply awry in that river system. Um, so that's one of the really powerful ways that kind of citizen science has led to guardianship of rivers and has been able to call the regulators and the government and the water companies and big agriculture to account for the damage it's doing to ecosystems. So what is the potential for the reformation of agriculture as well? Because mm. some people might say, okay, Great, love it, right to Rome, in theory, wonderful, but we need to feed people. We need yeah. this kind of agricultural setup, yeah. otherwise people will starve. 
So there's been all kinds of uh, fascinating kind of science and innovations in agroecology um, over the last kind of decade or so. Uh, actually, much of it revealing that the the kind of ideology of the enclosure people, the kind of the agricultural improvers, was wrong. That actually we could have ecological abundance going hand in hand with agricultural efficiency and productivity, uh, and creating enough food um, to help people. And that often the very plants that were being kind of decimated and destroyed by the improvers were actually provided a powerful functional role in keeping the soil healthy and making sure that the crops that grew on it uh, could be luxurious and abundant with nutrients and all the rest of it. You know, uh, in Charles Hassel's account of Monmouthshire, he literally calls the dock plant evil. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, he says, you know, it must be eradicated with a spade. Um, you know, and there goes the iridescent dock beetle, which is this beautiful green beetle that lives on the, on the docks. But what, what docks are doing when they're present on the land uh, is they're, they're healing the soil, essentially, because, you know, dock leaves are a, a sign that the, the soil has been overcompacted. It's been kind of kind of worked ragged basically and the taproot goes down and it starts like breaking up the the soil around it and putting it in a condition again where the nutrients can can get back so um so often the kind of war on nature has itself actually resulted in a war on agricultural efficiency uh, on our capacity to have kind of nutritious and abundant food as well um the problem is we're dealing with, you know, huge cultural change there. You know, a lot of people who've learned to farm in a very particular paradigm, all the subsidies and so on that government have given them have incentivized farming in that way as well. Uh, and now they're being told, oh, you know, mix it up again. You know, you've, you've been destroying the environment. And I can understand actually some farmers feeling really upset that they get targeted all the time for ecological destruction, because in many senses, they were doing what they were told to do by government, mm. by science, by people like Charles Hassel in the early 19th century. You know, they were told that the way they were farming and treating the land was idiocy, basically, and, you know, inefficient, uh, and had to do it in this new kind of scientific, modern way or whatever that has led ultimately to ecological devastation. So, you know, I do sympathise with farmers who feel like, hang on a second, you know, like <laughs> we were literally just doing what we were told and what the system was financially allowing us to do as well. Um, so, but there are some amazing uh, people working in agroecology at the moment, kind of trying to change change that from within. Uh, and I really wish that the major farming union, the NFU, would stop kind of seeing itself as in isolation from environmental change and in isolation from access campaigners who want people back in the landscape and start forming coalitions, start forming a connection of solidarity, saying, look, we want to change the landscape and improve it and make it more ecologically abundant. The government's not giving us the means to do it and use the power of the environmental voice and the environmental campaigners to push government to giving farmers what they need to create renewal. And I don't understand for the life of me why the NFU strategy is still so isolationist and still so hostile um, to people like myself, access and environmental campaigners. What is that relationship like when you uh, talk to farmers, either oh. through unions or kind of individually when you sort of uh, pitch up on land and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, often when you you know circumvent the, the, the big representational voices like the NFU, you get a much more interesting and nuanced conversation, I think, with a lot of farmers. Um, there was a, uh, a farmer who went on Farming Today as the sort of anti-right to roam voice a while back. Uh, uh, you know, and he said some stuff that actually we kind of agreed with. I mean, a lot of farmers don't understand what right to roam's policies are and a lot of things that we, you know, yes, we believe in access, but it's going to exclude land where there's kind of crops growing on it. Uh, it's going to come along, I hope, with interventions on things like dog ownership um, to make sure that, you know, the, the kind of the damage that dogs can do to the environment is put in some sort of structure um, as well. So there are many ways in which I think right to roam will actually benefit um, many of the issues that farmers face with access. Uh, anyway, we... we went down to his farm. We asked if he was up for visiting and kindly was. He took us out to lunch at the local community pub. Uh, you know, and we had a really positive conversation. We definitely didn't agree on everything, but 
he loves what he does. He loves his land. He loves nature. He understands people's need um, to access it. Um, he's just anxious about what the kind of implications of that are. Um, you know, he felt kind of like he was lonely up on his hill in the farm, and he didn't want the local town to be sort of set against him and, and you know, to be the voice that was sort of shuffling them, shuffling them off all the time. You know, mm-hmm. many farmers are dealing with a kind of epidemic of loneliness. You know, it's got one of the highest suicide rates of any profession at the moment. Um, you know, repeopling the landscape is about restoring the kind of community ties and social relations that make life meaningful and joyful for farmers as much as for, you know, the villagers and all the rest of it, you know. Um, so I, I see lots of potential overlap, actually, when we kind of ignore the, the big hostile voices and talk about what we actually want from a right to roam, why we want to repeople the landscape and the ways that that could potentially work for everyone. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm always up for chatting to farmers. I think there's, there's always a, a kind of fascinating conversation that you can have with them. Uh, I definitely don't see it as a hostile uh, relationship, even if at the moment they're quite sceptical of our proposals. You're talking of restoring connection restoring community what's it like on a right to roam trespass i'm sure many listeners will be curious like kind of feel like these prefigurative spaces mm. uh, almost i've uh, i've been on uh, one myself uh, that's my declaration of interest here <laughs> um i learned about some birds from a very nice man named i believe david banks so um he's Delightful. Go look him up. Um, he was very anxious to tell me that that was a blackbird that I, that I was listening. Which, you know, <laughs> wonderful. Um, but it also uh, reminds me of that uh, famous quote from the late great David Graeber that um, to do direct action is to behave as if already free. Yeah, the, uh, the the Graeber line is the kind of the catchphrase of our, our campaign at the moment. Um, yeah, exactly that. That's at the core of our practice on the land. So as I sort of mentioned earlier. Um, we don't see what we do as uh, protests. Um, we see them as reconnection. We see them as doing on the land what we'd hope to do with it if we already had a right to roam. Um, so often our events are quite joyful. Uh, they're quite playful. Um, they often are led by yeah, expert ornithologists and botanists and people who like uh, absolutely love and care for the natural world. Um, and they're quite educational spaces as a result uh, a lot of the time. So, you know, and that changes instantly the dynamic if there is a confrontation uh, with the landowner, the gamekeeper, whoever it is, because, you know, when they come over to you, it's not a load of people waving signs and shouting it's a lot of people kind of staring into you know a bit of black weed or you know <laughs> weed or something like that you know or kind of like fixating on a bee um <laughs> so uh, and, and already the kind of the calmness of what's happening on that space you know it's already a rebuttal of the critiques that are being used against the campaign because they can see that what re- reconnection means what kind of repeopling these landscapes means doesn't have to be something antagonistic and destructive it can be something beautiful something educational um something uh gentle as well. So what's next on the organising agenda for Right to Rome? If you can spill any beans <laughs> on that. I know there's a campaign yeah. on uh, Dartmoor and in various other places. Yeah, so there's the Dartmoor Appeal on July 18th uh, for your listeners in London. There'll be a, a, a kind of event outside, a rally outside the, the Royal Courts of Justice uh, about that. Um, we've got a, an event this weekend on the River Derwent, which is called Love Your River. And it's basically a kind of relay trespass of the River Derwent uh, with the paddleboarders hanging on to the swimmers, handing on to the, the walkers. Uh, and at each stage kind of profiling a different way to show that act of guardianship and, and care for your local river system. Uh, we've got an NHS event coming up next month uh, uh, that's kind of profiling uh, those questions, are kind of green prescribing, uh, physical and mental health benefits and so on. Um, 
Uh, and we've got an event along the Scottish border as well coming up in September where we'll do a sort of weaving conga line uh, across the border where, you know, your foot will be kind of trespassing and committing a civil infraction in, in one step and then it will be kind of a free and, 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 and libertine step in the next. Uh, <laughs> just to highlight the kind of the absurdity of the disparity between, uh, yeah, the kind of Scottish system and the English system. Uh, we'll be bringing loads of the Scottish land activists who are involved in the Land Reform Act down to the border to basically kind of hand over their wisdom, you know, to the English campaign. Uh, and hand over the, the kind of the promise of a kind of different type of landscape, a different kind of relationship to the land. So that's this year. Um, next year, we're introducing a concept called World Service, um, which is our vision of exactly that kind of grassroots ecology, replacing a kind of top-down model of fortress conservation, relying on keeping people out, replacing this kind of myth that land ownership will equate to kind of stewardship and custodianship of the land, which is clearly... Uh, shown to be bogus and shown to have failed. Uh, and we'll be profiling all the ways in which you, uh, as regular folk, can, can get out there, reconnect with the natural world and use that reconnection um, to create ecological care and ecological restoration. Um, so we're, we're going increasingly more cosmic uh, <laughs> as, as each year passes. Oh, I hate to drag you back from that cosmic wilderness <laughs> to the cesspits of Westminster, but I feel duty bound to ask you, of course, you know, about the theory of how that change happens on a legislative yeah. basis as well. And, and I would also like to hear about, I guess, on that basis, who comes to these right to roam uh, situations? Yeah. Because often you will find things like river pollution and uh, the preservation of bird life and that kind of thing can very much cut across sort of traditional political lines, but there are also potentially problems there with creating communities who are genuinely invested in like a communitarian vision of yeah. how the land can be used. Yeah. So on the kind of legislative uh, issue, uh, the at the moment, the Labour Party have committed to a right to roam act. Um, they're defining that in the terms that we've set, which is that we're replacing the default of exclusion, which currently presides with a default of access. So effectively introducing uh, parity roughly with the Scottish system, which is what our campaign uh, is all about. Um, obviously, there's can be a long road between uh, political promises and political delivery, um, mm -hmm. but we'll be looking um, at you, Keir Starmer. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be uh, continually uh, making sure that uh, that 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 message uh, remains strong and remains. Uh, remains heard within the palaces of Westminster. Um, we did some polling uh, this week uh, through YouGov that showed there's overwhelming support for a Scottish-style right to roam uh, across England. 62% uh, in favour, only 19% uh, opposed, and only 6% of those strongly opposed. So across all ages, all regions, and all political affiliations, uh, people uh, by a vast majority support a right to roam. Um, so it's a real logical, easy vote winner, um, which I hope means it'll come get over the line. Um, in terms of that question of building community, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a complex question. Um, you know, I personally don't believe that we should be building a society that is just rooted in a kind of, you know, a monoculture of thought and opinion. And I think actually there's something powerful about coming together around something that's optimistic and that's hopeful, like ecological love and ecological restoration. Because I think if that's your starting point of this kind of collective moment of joy and care, actually then the conversations that flow from that and maybe the disagreements that flow from that um, can potentially be more 
playful, joyful, productive, hopeful as well. You know, I think a lot of the kind of this the sort of cesspit of right wing politics that's tried to capture that deep sense of alienation I spoke about at the start and sort of channel it into kind of nationalist agendas with flag waving and bollocks about the Queen or whatever. Um, you know, I think that is rooted in this kind of uh, negative attempt to resolve the crisis of belonging. And I think we need to replace that with an open, non-exclusive, uh, affirmative, you know, kind of joyful vision of belonging ourselves. So I think that's the project for the left to deliver. Uh, and that's what Right to Rome is all about. And there, I think we will have to end it. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, guys.